Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. I am awful happy that you're here today. My guest this week is a good one. It's a good one. Now, not everybody's going to be into it, but I'm into it. I'm totally into it. And I think if you're over 45 and you're a dude, probably, probably more dudes are going to be into this than the women, then you'll have great memories of the music that my guest this week contributed to our lives as uh, eighth, ninth graders, 10th graders. Depends where you sit on that spectrum, you know? Maybe you were a senior in high school. Maybe you were in sixth grade. I don't know. My guest this week is Rick Emmett. He is a vocalist and guitarist, and he is a former member of the rock band Triumph, for which he sang lead on amazing songs like Fight the Good Fight, Magic Power, and Lay It on the Line. This band was like early MTV. MTV used some of their promo videos to fill time in the early days of the network because bands that weren't producing videos yet. And Triumph had kind of been a pioneer in using TV advertising to promote their early tours. And they came up with the name Rock and Roll Machine. And they did these promo spots that showed the band's big live shows that featured lights and pyrotechnics and all kinds of spandex, as was appropriate for the era. These guys were passionate musicians, Rick and his bandmates Gilmore and Mike Levine. They formed a power trio that just played loud guitar forward tunes with uplifting lyrics, and they had a great deal of success. Their album, 1981's Allied Forces, sold over a million copies in the U.S., and these guys had 18 gold and nine platinum records in Canada and the U.S. in the late 70s and 80s. They were a big band, and I was into them. I was into music as a kid. As a lot of you know, I'm the fifth of six kids, and my older siblings my oldest sister, Kathy, and my brother, Bill, a.k.a. Bubba, they had records. My sister had, I remember she had Bob Seger's Night Moves. She had Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. She had the Cars record, the Cars. And these were right as they were coming out. So this would be late, like 78, 79, 80. That's the era of Triumph. And Triumph was one of these big bands from Canada, like like Rush and Survivor. And uh, they were big. And I dug it. As I was listening to Magic Power for the first time in a lot of years, it really brought back great vibes. So I had a lot of fun talking to Rick. He shares the journey of being in a rock band in his new memoir, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict, and Triumph. And he talks about pros and cons and the trade-offs of being in a band, how you balance the art, you balance family life, and family's very important to him. He's a devoted husband, father, and grandfather. In this episode, we talk about the the significant pressure they had on them to churn out hits because they had a big advance from the record label that they had to pay back. We talked about why he started sharing his songwriting royalties with his bandmates because he was writing the songs and singing the hits that the band had, even though the band was Gil's band. Gil started the band, and, and there was tension between him and Gil as to who was going to be the, the face of the band, and that is probably what ended up breaking them up. We talk about Triumph's performance at the 1983 Us Festival, which was founded by Steve Wozniak. And we talk about the cruel arc of celebrity and how an artist deals with, quote, the whimpering disappointment of general disinterest. (laughs) Sounds like my high school experience. You guys, this is Rick Emmett from Triumph. Are you in Toronto or the suburbs of Toronto today? Yeah, I live in a neighborhood called Burlington, which is a western suburb of the GTA of greater Toronto area. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if we might start, Rick, if you could tell me about one particular day in your life 
And that day is May 29th, 1983. It was a Sunday, and you were in San Bernardino, California. What was that day like? Well, let's start out by talking about May 28th. (laughs) We played in a stadium in Florida on a bill with ZZ Top. And then we climbed on an airplane, and we flew across the United States and got to San Bernardino, had a nap, (laughs) got up, got into a helicopter, and then flew over to the site of the US Festival. And then the drummer in my band, Gil Moore, he had sort of befriended Steve Wozniak. And this event, he'd actually had it in 1982. He'd done one as well. This was a thing where, like Apple Macintosh, they'd made so much money that I think the accountants came to Wozniak and said, look, you're either going to have to pay Internal Revenue Service like 40 million bucks, or we can figure out a really fun way to burn up the money. (laughs) And Wozniak said, great, let's throw a party for America. So that was literally his idea of a high concept thing. We'll have a day where they have country acts. We'll have a day where they have like new wave acts. And we'll have a day where they have hard rock, like heavy metal. And these were all types of music that he kind of liked. I think he liked heavy metal a little bit more than the others. I can't be sure about that. But it was just a crazy, crazy day where the headliner on our day was Van Halen. And they had literally had a compound built in the backstage area, which looked like something from Lord of the Flies. There were (laughs) like walls that were made out of like, you know, sticks, sharp sticks, like a fort, you know, and you you got to go into the Van Halen fort and there were tents in there and and Winnebago's and whatever. And of course, because uh, Eddie Van Halen was married to Valerie Bartonelli at the time, there were all of these Hollywood, you know, actors and actresses that were coming and going from TV. You go, oh, I recognize that person. Oh, hey, look at that. You know, meanwhile, here are these Canadian guys. <laughs> we're just in our, you know, bunkered down in our Winnebago kind of going like, oh, this is what a weird day. And we were sandwiched in the middle of the day. The acts before us were like Motley Crue and Judas Priest. I think Priest went on just before us and they literally climbed onto like Harley Davidson's and drove them up onto the stage <laughs> wearing studs and leather and, and, you know, and I thought, man, it was like 95 degrees in the shade that day. No one had expected there were going to be this many people there. There were at least 250,000. Some eyeball estimates were as much as 400,000 people. It was unbelievable. It was just a sea of humanity as far as your eye could see. There, there's so much dust because these folks have trampled down any vegetation that might have been... I mean, California, once you get off the coast, it's just a desert anyways, kind of, you know. And so literally this ground had been returned to its desert status. You'd run up and down the stage a couple of times and then your lungs would be filled (laughs) with this dust. Felt like you'd smoked, you know, like an awful lot of hash (laughs) out of a hookah. Anyhow, so, but it was fun. It was, we only had to play for like 70 minutes kind of thing. And Triumph usually played with a big show, uh, flamethrowers and flashbots and laser lights and all this stuff. But here you are in the daylight, you know, and you really just got to play the tunes. I kind of liked that. I could sink my teeth into something like that, playing, just playing my guitar and singing my songs. And yeah, so, and I had a good day. Some days, you know, not so good, some concerts, but that day I had a good day. And there were all these cameras rolling, so I captured it for posterity. And that's the story of the US Festival. You know, in preparing for this interview, I, read your book and I went back and I looked at all the videos and, and had a great stroll through memory lane. And I'd forgotten about the us festival. 
And this thing was so big. I know you know this, but for our listeners, the day that Rick and Triumph played was Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Triumph, the Scorpions, and then Van Halen. Not a bad Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> but the overall festival, check out the rest of this lineup. The Clash, and that was the last show they played with Mick Jones, NXS, Wall of Voodoo, Oingo Boingo, Flock of Seagulls, Stray Cats, U2, The Pretenders, Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, and David Bowie. What an incredible group of artists, man. Yeah, yeah. And here's another story. I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about the festival or not, but Bowie, the, the ticket sales for the sort of New Age Day, New Wave Day, were kind of soft. So they went, well, we need to find a big headliner and make a big announcement, you know. And they went, well, let's get Bowie. And Bowie said, well, I went on tour. I can't, you know. And, and they said, well, you know, you know, what would it take? And it was like, okay, a million dollars. And they went, okay, we'll pay you a million dollars. So Bowie was getting a million bucks. The promoters didn't realize that Van Halen's contract had a, a clause in it that was like, you know, nobody can get paid more than us, you know? <laughs> so because of that clause, Van Halen now had to get paid a million and one dollars to which, you know, David Lee Roth was like in his glory, like, yeah, I'm getting paid a million bucks to play this show, you know? Consequently, all of the agents that represented all of the other acts, especially on that heavy metal day, when they went, well, if Van Halen's worth a million, surely to God, my act is worth more than we were actually contracted to play. We should get be, be getting paid more money. So it was like everybody was going back and renegotiating their deals because the David Bowie deal had sort of floated the boat to a much higher level. This is technology money pre.com. Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, I'm not sure if he's credited as the co-founder, but I don't know if Jobs gave him that honor, but you know, the partner of Steve Jobs in creating Apple. So he had a lot of cash. He could he could hire as many acts as he wanted. You know, certainly, as I said, you know, he was really just burning money that would have gone. And I think the accounts probably said to him, look, Steve, you know, we don't need any more advertising or promotion for the company. We're already, you know, we can't keep these things in stock. They're <laughs> flying. We're, we're doing great, you know, so... But the money's going to go to the internal revenue. So, yeah, he was going, yeah, great. I think he regrets... Booking the things, I've, I've seen interviews with him where he kind of goes like, look, I lost a lot of money. And I think he did. I think he ended up not just burning out the tax money, but also having to write a few right. checks after it was all said and done. But I mean, it was unbelievable. They had things like, uh, and I think Wozniak was maybe, there were other dreams of his that he was fulfilling. For example, one of my favorite writers when I was a teenager was a guy named Ray Bradbury. Mm. And he was a science fiction writer, and he wrote a lot of TV stuff, you know, Twilight Zone episodes and that kind of stuff. Wozniak was the kind of guy where he hired Ray Bradbury to be a kind of a narrator who was uh, reading scripts between acts over the PA system while they were, like, flying, floating airplanes over top of the, like, a drone stuff didn't really exist yet. But I think Wozniak had a handle on that technology. So there was like drone stuff going on of things that looked like spaceships while Ray Bradbury would be reading. That's incredible. And then you go, okay. What a day. As I'm watching that, the documentary, there's the live at the US Festival, I believe. And then there's the documentary about your band, Rock and Roll Machine, both great. As I'm watching you, what's it like to sing songs that you wrote to 300,000 people and hear those people singing them back to you. There's a surreal uh, quality to it. The other thing is that in that particular circumstance, 
there was such a large stage for, for the cameras to be rolling, dollies on tracks and things and substages for that, and then a huge pit for all of the... I mean, you can imagine this was like a global-sized event. So there, there was a pit for photographers, and it was humongous. And then there was a barricade that was very high. And so the fans, the actual audience, is a good 70 to 100 yards away from where you're actually on stage. You're really just playing for the cameras, yeah. you know? And in other circumstances where you're playing for large crowds, there are moments where you can't see a thing. The spotlights have come on and it's just a sea of blackness. You're really just kind of playing to the void and you're doing your show, you know? So it's kind of easy. When there's back rear lights that come on, now you can see folks and then you go, oh boy, I hope I didn't leave my fly down or something, you know, like... <laughs> That other side of it starts to enter into the equation. Especially where, when you're wearing 80 spandex. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I'll never live that down. But, <laughs> hey, it know, worked, man. Funny. It was part of the time. Here's a story 1978 ish, 79. We had a deal with RCA Records, and our bass player, Mike Levine, talks to them about wanting to shoot concert film footage. And so they make these, uh, we go on a soundstage in Kleinberg, Ontario. We shoot, I think, three or four songs from the Just a Game album. And uh, I'm in these uh, jumpsuits. They have a little skinny straps. They're scooped in the front, kind of go down to your navel. And they're, they're bell bottoms, but they're, they're skin tight kind of things. And we've already been out on the road playing for a bit. And these jumpsuits are starting, they're a little bit of wear and tear. The, the spandex is starting to stretch out. The, the lycra is, you know, giving... <laughs> So we're doing a song called Lay It on the Line. And as I'm doing the song and I'm singing and, and they're shooting the close-ups, the strap kind of falls off my shoulder, you know, so that now I'm bare-shouldered and bare-chested. And then a flashbot blows off behind me so that it's kind of like my face disappears into white. And then it, it kind of comes back, you know, the, the camera bulb recovers. And here's my face coming out of the white hot heat of the flash. Okay, so... Fast forward a year or so, MTV is just starting up. They haven't got enough product. They haven't got enough content to be able to be playing 24 hours a day. So they're searching around. They're going, what bands have got videos? And RCA goes, well, we, we have this. And by the way, those videos only got made because RCA was in a huge war with Sony Betamax, which format was going to become, RCA had VHS and Sony had Betamax. You know, they go, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll put VHS machines in every record store in the country and we'll put the Triumph thing in there on a loop. So everybody will be seeing the Triumph stuff, but they'll also be going marveling at this new VHS machine that's, you know, playing this tape. So that was sort of the edge that Mike had used to talk them into doing this thing. So now MTV's got this video and they start really, well, then young teenage girls that get home from school and they're watching the thing and they're going, who's the blonde guy? that has the red thing fall off his shoulder and his head explodes. That's fantastic. So then MTV starts using that clip, that money shot in their advertisement, you know, bumper, which is like MTV, you know, and it, they'd show the astronaut, you know, with his flag, sure. that thing. But then there would be this little clip of Rick Emmett from Triumph with his, you know, strap falling off and his head exploding. And it was like, and so that's just luck, right? In a career, that's that's just luck that those kinds of things happen. So I'm trying to relate to your crazy money. <laughs> you know, that was crazy. You know, 
Yeah, it's a terrible name for the podcast. I've been doing it five years and I haven't <laughs> been able to think of a better name because it has nothing to do with, it's really about what's our relationship with money? Does it help us or, or distract us from living the life we want to live? And so, and you talk about this a lot yes. in the memoir, right? You talk about, yeah. you know, how you got started and trade-offs between being successful and family life and stuff like that. So how old were you when you played your first gig? Oh, man. It depends what you're going to define as a gig. You, you were know, playing like, in high schools and stuff like that, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, even before that, I was still in high school and played my own old grade eight graduation, my school for the grade eight graduation of you know somebody else maybe three years later or something. By the way, Rick, I just noticed the date of Us Festival. I think that's probably the weekend I graduated from eighth grade. So just, I'm a few years younger <laughs> than you, but I was like, I swear that's like that, that same weekend. Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget because May 29 was my, my younger brother's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I was never really around for his birthdays because invariably Triumph would be out on the road. Memorial Day weekend was always sure. a really good, you know, that was a good payday to be out somewhere. And it was the beginning of the outdoor season. You know, there would be, you could be playing the Speedway in Toledo or you could be playing, as I mentioned earlier, you could be opening for ZZ Top. In, How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, you know, so... But you started in like elementary and high school shows, gigs like that. I literally was, uh, my mom would drag me to, she was a singer in the church choir and I had a high soprano voice. So I was a first soprano in the church choir. And I think there was probably one Sunday where I was supposed to sing a solo. And I was really self-conscious, shy kind of a kid. And my mom would say, no, no, come on. You, you got to learn how to do this. You got to overcome your shyness. You got to perform. So the first gigs would have been, you know, church gigs, you know, and that kind of stuff. And then I was in an all-city school choir as a boy soprano. That was at Massey Hall in Toronto. So, and the boy sopranos got to be in the front row of the choir on the stage of Massey Hall, which is a world-famous concert hall. And I would have been maybe in grade five. And I'd accelerated grade three and four. I was probably nine years old, eight years old. Those were kind of my first gigs. And in a band, it would have been in high school and stuff. I was in a band once called General Mud. It would have been around grade 12, somewhere around there. And we used to play this school called Jesse Ketchum. On Friday nights, they would have these open dances. And it was 25 cents at the door. And we would get enough that we could go down the street and buy a pizza after. And my dad would, he had an old Rambler classic. And we would go and rent a PA and then... At, from Long and McQuaid's in Toronto. And it was one of those old with big columns, you know, speaker columns and a head. And a, we'd even have to rent the mic stand. And it would all be sticking out the trunk of my dad's car as he drove us to this gig. And we go, okay, dad, you got to come back and pick us up at 1045, okay? How are your parents, were they supportive as you got to like university age and it became clear that music was your thing? Were they conflicted about the creative route versus a more traditional route in business? I don't think uh, my dad was much of uh, the story that I like to tell there is my dad never really bought into the whole program until I bought them a house. <laughs> and then, That'll do it. <laughs> as I handed him the keys, he goes, well, I guess this music thing is kind of working out for you. My mom was always pretty supportive of the creative nature, the, that side of my life. My dad was much more about sports, but I think like I'd had very good grades in grade school and up until about grade eight. And then I really discovered girls in a big way. And of course had the guitar thing going 
And I got to high school and the bottom dropped out. But before that, my mom and I had had a run because of the religion thing. Like my mom was very religious in the church on Sunday. And in my youth, I had been, you know, kind of, I've always been there with her. And then I got to about the age of about 12 and I went, I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm agnostic. I just, I can't buy into this God thing. I can't buy into the afterlife. You know, I respect the morality of your religion, but everything else about it seems based on this, you know, bizarre supernatural thing that I, I, I just can't, I don't get. So I'd had a big falling out with my mom at that point. And then as my teenage years, as I became more of a sort of a long haired hippie, uh, you know, uh, staying out late at band practices on school nights, that kind of stuff. There was a war that was going on in my house. And eventually my parents kicked me out. My hair was too long. I've refused to get it cut. And they said, well, you know, you live in our house. You have to live by our rules. And I went, okay. What year was that? I would have been 18, 17, 18. 75, something like that? Oh, geez. No, no. 75 was when Triumph started. No, that would have been about 1970. Okay. Ni- yeah. 70, 71. Somewhere around there. Anyhow, but it all worked out. You know, they welcomed me back and I didn't have to cut my hair in the end. And then I was living at home. And in my memoir, there's a picture of my dad and I standing on the front steps of our house. I was in a band. I hadn't shaved for, you know, a month and had this long hair and I'm wearing a robe. And my dad was going to work and he had his suit and he had his briefcase. And my mom said, oh, let me get a picture of the two of you on the front steps of the house. And it was those beautiful sunny spring morning. So, you know, you can see this thing of these two cultures that are <laughs> clashing, you know. Yeah. But in the end, like my dad was not a, a mean spirited person at all. He was just old school, you know, and in his world, music, that's not that, that's not something you do for a living, you know. Like you should be a teacher, you should be a lawyer, you know, and you've got the brains for it. That's what you should do. And of course, he'd been a company man. He worked for the same company for 46 years, you know, to give him a mantle clock, yeah. you know, when he retired, that kind of a thing, you know, so. Family's a big theme in your book. You go to great lengths to pay tribute to the people in your life and and no one more than your wife. I love the story of how she finally had to hit you over the head to get you to ask her out. Will you share that letter she wrote with you? Yeah. Well, I played in a glam rock band <laughs> called Justin Page, uh-huh. and I had full makeup, like Alice cooper kind of black stuff, black lipstick that was running down my face. And I had a costume that had, it was like a leotard with a, a stuffed white leather glove, wired, stuffed with foam, that came between my legs and was holding onto my package. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, and we're playing a bar called the Edwin Hotel in Toronto. It's Halloween night, 1974. And uh, I'm going to be leaving the band. I've already kind of given them my notice. But, you know, I'm still playing it out because I want to go start a progressive band with some friends of mine. But a pal of mine from high school named Pat McGuire, who had played drums in a band with me, he was kind of sweet on this girl. And she had kind of been sweet on me in high school. Like when she was in grade nine... There had been a, like a, you know, a, an athletic night at the school. And in the gym one time, a girl comes up to me and says, hey, you see that girl over there? She really likes you. And I looked over and I go, she's in grade nine. I was in like grade 11 or something. I go, you know, I'm not looking at that stuff. You know, I've got my eyes set on some cheerleader that I'm never going to get, you know. So, <laughs> Perfect. So this is, you know, six years later. I'd seen her in, around the school and she dated a couple other guys that I knew. And I would see her from time to time. 
anyways, long story getting longer. She comes to this gig with Pat and it's Halloween. So they're in costumes. He's dressed like a baker. He's got a job as a baker during the day. So he just, what was it called? The toque foray or something, you know, the, sure. the white hat with the, and he's put flour all over himself. And he, <laughs> so, you know, he, so he looks like a, a baker and she's dressed like a hooker. Like she's wearing a slit skirt and, you know, got, and I'm going, Hey, all right. <laughs> you know? And meanwhile, the bar we're playing is the campus where there's bikers and hookers for real that are there. So my wife is just fitting right in. She's not my wife at the time, you know? So anyhow, in the aftermath of her coming to see me play in this band and sitting and talking, about uh, like two days later, I'm sitting, and again, I've played a bar bit. So I'm up, it's it's the middle of the day, it's noon, and I'm sitting having my breakfast. My mom is having her lunch, and we're sitting at the kitchen table. The mail's come, she goes, oh, there's a letter for you. And, I, and so I open it up, and it's a letter from you know, my future wife, and it sort of says, listen, I find you attractive, and interesting and you know i don't know if you'd be interested in this but maybe we could go for a coffee sometime or a, a walk in the park or you know anything you like if you are interested give me a call so i read the letter and i show it to my mom i go hey what do you think of this and my mom reads it and she turns to me and she says well a girl that would write you a letter like that she's only interested in one thing <laughs> and i go you think really i I pick up the wall phone in the kitchen and I, I dial the number, like right in front of my mom, I dial the number. So and I started talking to her and yeah. So and we went, the first place I took her was uh, Second City. Perfect. Which, yeah, I mean, you know. Who was playing? Was anybody that broke out on the stage? Uh, like John I Candy or Aykroyd would have been there? Oh, they'd already, they'd already okay. moved on, yeah. you know. So it was, it was the second generation. I'm trying to think if Rick there, Moranis, there might have been. Rick Moranis, Bob. Yeah. All those guys were already graduated okay. and out of it. You mm -hmm. know, it was the second tier was in. I'm trying, Eugene Levy. There might have been uh, some folks. No, he was also, you know, gone. Right. There might have been like Robin Duke. You remember there was a, like a second level of folks that ended up on mm -hmm. SNL. Mm -hmm. And there there might have been. The, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of some of those folks. In the, oh, it's, you know. Yeah. There, there might have been a couple of those. Oh, wow. How cool. That would have been 1974. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. Well. fun. And so how did you hook up with Gil and Mike? The band after I was in Justin Page, I was in called Act Three, was a progressive trio. Progressive like yes and ELP, not like politically progressive. Progressive rock. Like we would play a yes medley. We would play King Crimson stuff from Starless and Bible Black. And, and we would play... Ambitious. Yeah. Oh, and we were all over the place. You know, there would be a song from like... Uh, Head, hands, and feet, Albert Lee, this country picking, and I would go, right, let's do that. You know, we would play Plinth by Jeff Beck, you know. But then the guys that own bars would say, you know, your stuff is like, uh, can you please play some stuff that's more jukebox, more, you know. So in our first set, we would have to do an Eagles tune, or we'd, we'd do a medley where we would play Can't Get Enough by Bad Company. But because it was a shuffle, we could take it straight into Some Kind of Wonderful by Grand Funk. You know, so we were all over the map. But yeah, then Triumph, they were trying to put their band together and trying to find a guitar player, singer, kind of songwriter, creative guy. And they came and saw me there and made me an offer I couldn't refuse eventually. Like first it was like, you know, would you be willing to leave your band? I go, well, and they go, why don't you just come and we'll have a meeting and we'll sit and we'll play together and we'll see if there's any, you know, karma, see if there's any kismet. You know, he go, okay, you know, and they were, 
the smartest guys I ever met as musicians. They they really had their shit together. There was contracts for gigs. They didn't even have a band and they had marketing and posters and and they had a record contract, a development contract with a label because Mike had sort of done a lot of record promotion stuff. And so he knew this guy that was a partner in a, in a small indie label in Canada. So it was like they already had a record deal. They, they showed me a 45 that they'd already made that was already going to get on the radio in certain places because they knew how to make that stuff happen. And I was going, wow, this looks like, you know, my dream of writing songs and getting them onto record, it's going to happen. The biggest kick of all was, I'm tying back to your, your crazy money thing, in my last stages of uh, being in Justin Page, I was getting paid 175 bucks a week, like six shows a night in bars, you know, with a matinee on Saturdays. So that was, it was hard work for low money, but 175 a week, if I could get Triumph to give me that money, then I could move out with my girlfriend, the one that wrote me the letter, and, and we could rent a house with my best friend who was a French horn player who had a student loan kind of thing. And so it was like, this was the plan. So it was more that I wanted to move out with my girlfriend, more than it was really I wanted to join the band. It was like they offered me a steady paycheck, whether they played gigs or not. I went, oh, awesome. Great. That's how the band started. But how did the dynamics of the band evolve? Because that's really important to what happened eventually as you all grew as artists and a successful act. I mean, it was really the drummer's band. He was the band leader on the contracts. Yeah. He had an agent's license. And he would literally book a lot of one-nighters and stuff on his own. He knew the buyers because he had a band before that that was called, the name of the band was Abernathy Shagmasters Wash and Wear Rock and Roll Band. And everybody just called it Abby Shag. (laughs) And so he had this band, Abby Shag, and they would play high schools. In that day and age, all high schools had budgets to be able to book bands for dances every month. And so there was this market. You could be working. You could get a Friday and a Saturday, no problem, you know. So you'd do split weeks. You'd go into a bar and play like a Monday. And Gil had all these connections, you know. So anyhow, the dynamic was that everything pretty much always crossed his desk, you know. Mike was radio and promotion and marketing. And it was really like, Rick, you're going to have to write the songs that make the whole world sing. You're going to have to come up with creative ideas, you know. And then you got to jump around on stage and you got to look good and you got to sing so high that, you know, you're going to make Robert Plant jealous. <laughs> so, you know, okay, so I can do this, you know, and I could, I could make that happen. But then of course, as the band developed, I was paying a little bit more attention to what was going on in terms of the power dynamics and the business of it. And then the, those guys, especially Gil, he really wanted to sing at least 50% of the songs. Whereas now the success that the band was starting to have, it was really with Rick's songs. It, like, if people look at the history of Triumph and they go, oh, they've got some evergreen tunes there, Magic Power, uh, Hold On, Lay It on the Line, Fight the Good Fight. Every single one of those, there's, I wrote those tunes, I sang them. And so there was starting to become pressure from the record company, like, hey, this should, band should be more about Rick, to which Mike and Gil were going, oh, we don't like that. You know, We need to find a, a business environment where we can maintain our our grip, our power, you know. And you started splitting your publishing royalties with those guys. You wrote those songs, so you got the publishing credit, but in the spirit of keeping things together and keeping everybody happy, you were signing off 67% of those royalties to your fellow musketeers. 
Yes, exactly right. Because it was that Musketeers ethic. Plus, it was no secret that the Beatles had run into big problems because Harrison was going, oh, you know, just another Northern song. <laughs> like, he was getting the short, short shrift because of the Lennon-McCartney power dynamic that existed. And it also happened in the police where, you know, Sting was clearly, you know, and, and he wouldn't share. And the other guys were really unhappy to the point where then Sting went, well, then, see ya, you know. And I didn't want to say see ya in 1984, 1983-84. I still wanted to try and find a way to make it work, you know. But by the time we got to about 1986, I was going, oh, I got to find a way out of yeah. this, you know. It's not going to be pretty. And it wasn't. It was ugly. What bands have found, are you two and REM, did they have more sharing of all the songwriting royalties? I don't know that, but I can tell you that in the music business classes that I used to teach, I would say, look, if you have any level, level of success. Now, I would also <laughs> preface this by saying one band out of 10 that gets signed to a major label record contracts gets a chance to make a second. Mm. So your odds are not good. But if you do manage to survive and have success, you really should think about structuring it so that the songwriting credits are shared so that you have come up with some kind of partnership contract where the publishing money is going to get shared. And if it's not, and I think maybe you could look at the Rolling Stones and you could say, well, you know, Charlie Watts never quit, you know, and it's probably because Mick was smart enough to say, look, Charlie, we're going to give you enough money every year that you're going to have independent wealth. You're going to be fine, you know. You aren't going to have the kind of independent wealth that Keith and I are going to have, you know, but you're going to be fine. And I would say to singers and songwriters in bands, I would say those guys in the rhythm section, you better take their, you know, their souls into consideration. You know, at a certain point, they're going to feel like they're getting short shrift. You know, they're giving you all of their days and nights when you're out on the road, but they're not getting the publishing money. They're not getting the writer's checks, you know. So, so there's the money part, and then there's like the who's going to sing the song part, which is an ego, who's the soul of the band, who's getting the attention. How does ego come in to mess things up? In Triumph, we had a pretty nice dynamic in the early going. Three Musketeers, and then Gil would sing a song, Rick would sing a song. The concert could kind of go like that. The album could kind of go like that. Mike was the producer at the time, so he would sort of oversee the development of the material in pre-production and gear it towards that kind of a conclusion that everything would be balanced. But the imbalance came because the audience was going, Hey, Rick. Right. You know, I can literally remember being in a band meeting once where Gil jokingly, but with a lot of truth said, you know, I'm sick and tired of the, when Rick sings his songs, everybody climbs up on their seats and their, their bicks are yeah. in the air. And when I sing my songs, everybody goes out to the, to the refreshments to, to get themselves right. a Coke. And it was like, I can see why that would be frustrating. And then the band's thing became, well, we got to try and write a hit for Gil. We got to try and give him a video where he's the star and that becomes a big hit. And it just, it never really, it never manifested. It never happened, you know? The other band that comes to mind from this era that had sort of two singers was Journey, right? With Neil and Steve Perry. And that didn't end well either, right? Because Steve was kind of the front man of that band. But it was Neil's band, wasn't it? Yeah, but I'll, I don't think Neil was a singer. 
I think in the early, early days, there were situations like Greg Rowley was a guy that was in, he was a keyboard mm. player in Journey that had played Woodstock with Neil in Santana's band. Oh, wow. They were freaking teenagers, you know, like literally teenagers from the Bay Area. So Journey was growing and it had good musicians that were always getting better as they replaced guys. And then it was like, you know what? We really need to find a front man that can give us a voice that'll get us on radio everywhere. And Steve Perry was the guy, you know? So I don't think there was any fight there about the power dynamics of who sings what. I think the dynamic there was everybody got to have a credit card on the road from the band. And it was like, Neil was spending way more than he should. And Neil was going, well, it's my band. I'll spend money the way, I'll live the lifestyle that I, if I want to buy a Ferrari, I'm going to. And there's that kind of mad money in rock and roll, you know. Not necessarily in my, sorry, I had enough to buy guitars, but <laughs> not necessarily Ferraris, you know. I think that became the power dynamic there. Who's going to get to sort of be in charge of the power dynamics of the money in the business? That was never an issue in Triumph. It was always going to be Gil, you know. It was it was his band. Gil's dad had been an accountant that had done the band's books in its early stages, and Gil understood bookkeeping like to the nth degree, like clean as a whistle. You know, Revenue Canada would come and want to audit us. And the auditor would come and sit down and said, oh my God, I've never seen, <laughs> a, I've never seen an operation in rock and roll as clean as this one. This is That's unbelievable. Hilarious. Like, are you a banker or something? And Gil would say, well. <laughs> right, right. What's with the hair, accountant guy? It, yeah, yeah. You all had a deal. Your original deal was with RCA, but there were some reasons why you wanted to leave the label, and you, you were able to get away, and a guy named Irving Azoff bought you out quite savvily, I would imagine, for $3 million. But that wasn't $3 million that you got. It was a loan. Yeah. Tell me how that affected the creative process from that point on. First of all, when you go in, in our documentary, Irving will literally say, well, no, I, I never said they had to write singles. I never he said that. He did say that. Oh, he did say that. Yeah. For a little insight into Irving, I'm going to offer this. You can find a clip, you know, Don Henley, when the Eagles were going into the, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Henley's speech, he says, you know, there are some people that say Irving Azoff is the devil. And he goes, and he says, I can understand that. All I can say is this. He was our devil. Right. <laughs> you know, and so we thought Irving Azoff, he's going to be our devil, you know. I'm not sure that he'd committed to the whole idea of running that label in the same way that he was committed to managing the acts that he had in his management. Like Irving had his hand in so many things, you know, the development of Live Nation and those kinds of things. Like he was in on those, you know, ground floor. So there's pressure on you guys to put some hits out. Regardless yeah, of what and, Irving says in the documentary. Well, there's a $3 million sort of Damocles that's dangling over your head. It's like you got to make that money back. I'm pretty sure that what Irving thought he saw with Triumph was, hey, touring act, you know, selling a million albums, great. Let's make them so that they're selling $4 million, $7 million. Like, let's get them into that Journey Sticks, you know, league. Let's bump them up. This will be an easy thing to do. And in fact, you know, it was like, hey, bring in Ron Nevison, the producer that had done the Heart album that had sold five million in one summer, you know, the Jefferson Starship resurrection, you know. So it was like, hey, this is how we're going to do it. But those were the kinds of things that were like, 
Oh. This is because there's this unrecouped money. And, you know, I mean, another thing that happened was we were liable, as, as the contract read, we were liable for the interest on the unrecouped yeah. amount. Ooh, brutal. Yeah. So that like a, a fiscal year would come to an end. And it was like, uh oh, here's this bill for a quarter of a million bucks. And it was like, right. <laughs> Can we give you a live album instead of the quarter of a million dollars? You know? So those kinds of things were starting to happen. Eventually, you guys kind of came down from the top of the game and you had to deal with what you refer to in the book as the whimpering disappointment of general disinterest. <laughs> yes. How do you deal with that personally? How do you handle it emotionally? You have to come to terms with it. It's like, I mean, I'm 70 years old. There's days where I get up and my knee goes, yeah, sorry, man. <laughs> you think you're 70, but this knee is 87. You know, arthritis is starting to happen. So there's certain things where you're coming to terms, you know, and I think when you're a rock star and you're in a rock band that has enjoyed a certain level of success, but the Rolling Stones are of, they're the anomaly. They're the outlier. That's not the story that most bands have. You know, that's not what happens. There's some guys that would like to believe that they're Mick Jagger, but they're out there on stage in their pot bellies and they can't sing the notes anymore. And you, you look at them and you go, buddy, you should have been coming to terms, you know, 15 years ago with what was starting to happen. And I never really had a problem with that. I would... I mean, I wanted to get out of the rock band because I wanted to try and do different things and write different things. So I was on a journey as a creative artist. I wasn't going to enjoy the same level of success. It wasn't the amount of success that I was after. I was really more about wanting the creative kind of thing. And so that's a coming to terms. That's, that's a thing where you're compromising with reality, you know, and you're saying, okay, this is the way of life. You know, this is how it works. Now, look, when I was in high school, I had been a, not a world-class, but I had been a collegiate-class sprinter. I could run a 100-yard dash in 10 seconds flat. So as a 15-, 16-year-old kid, I was in the upper echelons of that. And then in my 17th year of life, I tore the ACL in my right knee playing football, and I was never going to have that again. You know, it was gone. In one night, in one night football game, the course of my life changed and I was no longer going to be an elite athlete. In any case, I was 5'8 and I was 135 pounds soaking wet. Any dream of being an, a professional athlete was a, it was a pipe dream. It was a dream of youth. And in a sense, later on in my life, having to deal with those realities when I was younger made it easier to deal with realities when I was 35, 40. 45, 50, you know, like all along the way, there's certain things that you have to come to terms with. You have to, you know, you adjust. I think that's one of the things that in the book, I'm trying to make sort of evident to everybody, no matter what your walk of life is, you want to be happy? You better figure it out how to come to terms, yeah. you know, like, or else you're just going to be disappointing yourself over and over and over. You're being ridiculously reasonable here, Rick. I mean, that's... <laughs> You know, you even say in so many places, you're putting it all in perspective. You write that success as an artist meant being able to provide a better life for my parents, my brother and his family, as well as college educations 
for your kids. Like that's what success looks like, you know, not being yeah. on stage in front of 300,000 people, but providing for the people that you love. Exactly right. Yes. And I know that for most folks, they think rock star and they think outlandish behavior, lines of cocaine, you know, hookers and blow, you know, like <laughs> all of these kinds of cliches. And there was an element of that at a certain time in my life, but it was never what my life was about, you know. And when I would see it and come into contact with it back in the day, I would go, oh, buddy, you're just riding for a fall, mm. you know, like it's this is going to get ugly for you at a certain point, you know. So, I mean, my wife and I still have Christmas parties and we invite the friends that I had in high school. You know, and now we're all old farts and we've all got problems and everybody's standing around going, oh, yeah, well, I had prostate cancer in 19, you know, like, so like that's life, you know. So I think if you want to have a, a full one and a rich one, there does have to be this kind of common sense thing that runs through it because it's a crazy cliche, but it's really the, the simple things of life that they're, they're the best things. They're, those are the gifts. The sun that comes up, the, the rainbow that's in the sky, like these things are what you have to appreciate in that moment. And the moment is all you ever get. So are you going to be in the moment thinking, Ah oh, man, I wish I had more blow. You know, <laughs> uh, I wish there were I wish there were three girls in my bedroom instead of just one. Like, yeah, I just think that kind of stuff is it just gets people in trouble. You know, well, you're talking about relationships here too. Talk a little bit about the reconciliation with your bandmates and how you came to that. My younger brother Russell was dying of uh, pancreatic liver cancer. Kind of, it, it was everywhere when they finally found it. So he was in stage four and he was going through all of that stuff of how do you come to terms? You know, how do you uh, reconcile? How do you clean up all your stuff? And then he turned the table on me and he said, well, you know what I would really like as a, as a legacy of mine is I would love to see you clean up your baggage. And I would go, what? <laughs> hey, wait, <laughs> I'm not the one dying here. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, he was a big triumph fan. He loved like, no one had more fun at Triumph gigs. Like when I would get my brother a limo and get him to come be backstage and hanging out, and pulling beers out of the cooler. And like my brother was in, you know, seventh heaven. This was the greatest thing ever. And he was really proud of me. And, and there was all of that. So he, he was saying, you got to reconcile with those guys. You're carrying around this thing. And it's, it's a horrible thing to have to have in your life. You should figure out a way to get rid of it. And I went, oh, my God, you're going to make me do this? Because I was carrying around a lot of uh, anger and resentment. And if you think about life as being, you know, this side of me is my vices, my greed, my ego. My, you know, this side of me, oh, I'm, I'm virtuous. I'm good. I'm, I'm kind. I'm gentle. I'm gracious. I, you know, I'm forgiving. And my brother was saying, I want you to become a forgiving kind of gracious person. And I was like, you bastard. You, you, I want to hold on to my anger. I, I, you know, I go, okay, okay. I'll. And so that was the beginning of it. And there had been over the years, all of branches from guys in the business that ran things like the music industry hall of fame or, you know, whatever. And they would say, come on, you know, we'll induct you, but you'll have to show up on stage together. And I would go pass. So finally I went, okay, maybe I'll consider it this year. I should get together with the guys at a coffee shop and we should sit down and talk. And it was awkward. It was horrible. You know, 
I mean, we'd have lawyers fight for six or seven years back in after I'd left. So it was not happy. It was, but man, to give all the guys full credit, you know, we found a way to make it work. And then it was great. You know, we went into the uh, first one was the Music Industry Hall of Fame. And then we did the Canadian uh, Juno Hall of Fame, which is kind of like your Grammys. Yeah, you know, we've done the Canadian Walk of Fame since. We went and played a gig. Gil wanted his kids to see him play in the band. So the old agent we had said, well, there's a promoter in Sweden. He'd love to have you headline his. And we went, Sweden? Okay, let's go. And we, we rehearsed for like, I don't know, six weeks. It was crazy. And then we went and played the show. And they said, look, while you're doing it, you should go and play the one in Oklahoma, Rocklahoma. You should do that one too. So we went there and we played that. And and then Gil was happy. He goes, yeah, I've done it. That's good. I, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going back to my business now. And and that that was fun. And that was like a, a really sweet thing that we sort of brought it all the way full circle again, you know? And it really did feel like Three Musketeers. And then finally, there was the, the documentary where I'd sort of suggested to them, you're not going to have a really great closing chapter for this thing unless we have a fan fest kind of day. And in front of our greatest fans, the band should get up and play two or three songs. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. And I'm telling you, man, that was like standing in front of a jet engine. Like it was just an incredible rush of energy of those folks that were just, this was a dream for them coming true. And we were scared shitless. But once we sort of got over the brick in our pants, we were like, hey, like sea legs. And we kind of did this thing. And, and there was no better moment than the hug before we went on and then the hug after we came off. You know, that was great. Is the anger gone? I'm only human, right? Yeah. So there are moments where I can get, you know, I fall back into the learned behaviors of being a bad person, <laughs> you know. Being a person, <laughs> you go, you're saying, being a person person. Yeah, well, but being, you know, this side of Oh, yeah, that, that guy, yeah, you know, sure. That anger person. You know? I know him. Yeah, the two-faced guy from Batman, you know, like I would be the evil guy. And, and I, you can get lost there. You know, you really can. It's not a good place to be, you know. It's way better to get lost over on the side where you're going, oh, you know, I'd love to buy the world a Coke. I would love to make the, write the songs that make the whole world sing. You know? you know, you were talking about the moment, you know, about being in the moment. It's like, I think the greatest drug in the world would be to be able to just know that each moment is fantastic. You know, like if you don't have big problems, then life is good. Yes. There's so much crazy shit going on in the world right now. And my kids are going to come home from school today and we're going to have dinner and life is good. And I got to learn how to enjoy that instead of thinking about ah oh, shit why can't i get booked why doesn't my podcast have more listeners all this kind of bullshit yes your ambition can really twist you out of shape and what you just described you know in my family i was an artist and so getting twisted out of shape that's my that's what i do <laughs> i you know i twist myself out of shape all the time and my wife would be the one that said look come on and my wife as a saying which, you know, it's a common one, but she would go, Rick, first world problems, okay? Totally. First first world problems. And I would go, yeah, it's true, it's true. So I am incredibly blessed to have the wife that I have, to have the marriage that I have, and I'm grateful for that every single day, you know? So plus I have all of these friends. Outstanding. You know? 
Yeah, yeah, and there's always that. And believe me, these things—they're—they're they're like life preservers. They're like pick your metaphor. They're—they're they're Linus security blankets. Of course, right there. There's a whole yeah. bunch. Yeah. When do you play guitar? What does the daily guitar practice look like for you? I'm trying to work up. A, I have a new project on the go. I'm going to plug it. It's called Ten Telecaster Tales, and oh, it's cool. the kind of finger st- finger style jazz stuff on a Telecaster guitar that I had custom made for me. It's very straightforward, but it's extremely demanding, especially for a guy at 70 that's starting to get some arthritis. So mornings are not good, but I will try to play 20 minutes to an hour sometime in the day. And then I usually like to try to get in another 20 minutes to an hour uh, before I go to bed at some point, Mm -hmm. you know. Now, I also love to watch baseball and we're, it's October, you know. Uh, so a lot of times my wife will start watching something on streaming on the TV downstairs and I'm up here and there, there's a very large, can I show you this just Absolutely, so you can sort yeah. of see? Yeah. There's my studio over there. Excellent. So I have this big space and I've got a nice big TV and, and so I'll sit on that couch with one of my guitars under Eli, the wonder horse there, <laughs> and I'll plink and plunk with the sound turned down on the TV and I'll sometimes even go, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to turn the sound right off and I'm going to sort of bear down here for the next 10 minutes. Clearly I haven't got a handle on this piece yet. Yeah. So I'll do that kind of hard work, but it's kind of fun because at any given point I can go, Oh, the Texas Rangers just hit a home run. <laughs> you know, and Stop what I'm doing, turn on the sound, go, Oh, that's great. You know, that's kind of what my life is like scheduling of rehearsing and practicing and yeah. All right. I got to tell you, after we booked this interview, I went back and started listening to some Triumph songs I hadn't heard in a long time. And when I heard Magic Power for the first time in a long time, I got chills. I have to tell you that. It was someplace in my life, 83, 84, whatever, through high school. Beautiful tune. What are the words, the world is full of compromise and infinite red tape mean? If I can remember the context now, the line going into it was... Uh... Oh, no, it's the line that comes after. So that is kind of like the third verse of a song. You've come out of the bridge and the solo and stuff, and you and there's like the band chorus, like, bang, the world is full of compromise, the infinite red tape. Ah, but the music's got the magic. It's your one chance for a escape, bum, 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 bum. So turn me on and turn me up. So what's happening there is a storyteller. You're, you're going, okay, here's the bad stuff, but here's the good stuff. And you're just sort of contrasting that and musically making that happen so that you're getting to that payoff, which is magic power was the juice of music coming through the radio. Really, that's what I was talking about in the song. And you've made that point already two times in the song. There's been two choruses. There's a third chorus. You know, what's going to make the juice of the third chorus feel good for folks? Well, you build straight eights into something where you go, so turn me on and turn me up. It's your turn to dream. So what you're doing now is using a third verse to turn the voice around from I'm talking about me to now I'm talking about you. Mm-hmm. This is about us. And so in third verses uh, in songs, I would often be trying to make that switch of narrative from, yeah, this song's all about me to this song's about us. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And that was a big triumph thing that we would connect with those folks in the seats and they would feel Triumph is my band. They make me feel like I belong. Now, I know all bands have that, but in Triumph's case, it was writ large, you know. The name of our band was Triumph, <laughs> you know, like Triumph of what? It was the Triumph of that 
sort of that human spirit, that ability to feel inspired and motivated and goosebumps, you know? You remind me of a little story. I did a flexi-disc project for Guitar Player Magazine once, and it was with some great guitar players, Alex Lifeson of Rush, mm. Ed Bickert, who was like the dean of Canadian jazz guitar, and Leona Boyd, who was the first lady of Canadian classical guitar. We did this guitar quartet thing together, and Alex and I were in the studio mixing the thing at one point, and he'd come up with some sort of thing where he was adding echo repeats onto a guitar part that he played, and it really was a moment where there was this real oral kind of audio magic that was kind of going down. As we're sitting there at the in front of the console, he sticks his arm in front of me and he goes, hey, hey, look at this. And he holds up and the hair on his arms is like standing up. And he goes, GB factor, man. And I go, GB? He goes, yeah, goosebumps. <laughs> and I go, oh, yeah, you know, GB factor. So that became something that I would talk about that all the time. That's what you want the music to do for you, to find that thing that tickles you inside that your body goes, oh, this is as good as life gets, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's cool. Two more questions. Besides your family, what are you most proud of? Wow. Besides my family. I think I'm proud of, uh, wow. Yeah, I'm so used to now sort of being self-effacing and humble. I'm, I'm proud of, of the body of work that I've done. When I look at my publishing catalog and my statements from my publishing, uh, so can, and I look at it and I go, wow. That's a lot of crap. Like, mm -hmm. I was pretty prolific, you know, and so I'm proud of that. And the other thing is now here I am in the last chapter of my life. I've written a book of poetry. I've written a memoir. I'm writing stuff that's not just songs and, and guitar pieces. So I've branched that out and I kind of go, that's good. That's, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. It's not like I'm going to go out and start going, Hey, <laughs> build me a statue, you know, like. <laughs> They'd find something you said in a magazine, in, you know, Cream Magazine in 1981, and they'd tear it down anyway. That's true. That's exactly true. And in fact, when I was teaching at the college, I could really feel this coming. The world of sort of not just political correctness, but also, you know, I was an old white guy, you know, like, and so I was like, old white guy, you should get out of the way. And I went, okay, I think you're right. I will. <laughs> and so I, I quit. Yeah. You know, like I literally said, I'm, I'm not coming back. I don't think it was a mistake. I, I think you really do have to get out of the way, you know. So you mentioned something earlier about this common sense. I think I'm proud of that. You know, I'm proud of just sometimes I made the right decision. It was just common sense. Yeah. I didn't let – I used to tell songwriters this all the time. Look, you're trying to develop a thing where you get the song to talk to you. You want to hear what the song is telling you. This is like the dog whisperer, the horse whisperer. You want to hear what it's trying to tell you. Get yourself out of the freaking way. Mm. You don't matter anymore. It's about that piece of music. It's, it's about what it wants to become. And you need to be able to understand that and know that, you know? And that's an ego thing, right? And you can hear the songs where the writer couldn't really get themselves out of the way. The song has not been fully realized just because that ego problem's there. So I think I was pretty good at that. I think as I got older, I, I, I learned more and more about that. So yeah, I'm kind of proud of that. Do you feel rich? There are moments where I feel I don't deserve the richness that I have, but there are other moments where like, I took my car in for service the other day, right? I have a nice car. It's a BMW. It's a nice car. 
And I meet a guy that's there. And this is a high-end dealership that's very fine cars, like Ferraris. And and this guy's a collector. So he's got dozens of these things. And I'm thinking about, wow, his independent wealth. That, that's unbelievable. And then he's telling me a story about, you know, when he, he was first getting into it and he bought a car and it was like a... a some sort of gullwing Mercedes or something. He goes, well, they told me it was your car, Rick. That's why I wanted to buy it. And I go, it wasn't my car. <laughs> now, I didn't have a car like that back in the day. He goes, oh, he goes, oh, wait, sorry. It was one of the guys from Rush. It was Neil Pert. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there in the, in the guy's uh, you know, office in the car dealership, and I'm, I'm feeling a twang. I'm feeling a, a twinge of, of <laughs> like... I, oh, I wish I had that. You know, that little bit of envy. You yeah. know? And I go, oh, that's come on, Rick. Rick, envy is not good. You don't don't feel envy. That's you where you, st- you have to sit there and go, I have enough. I have enough. I have enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm good. I'm, I don't need that's to be it. Neil Pert. I have, I, I, I have my health. <laughs> that's it. Oh, right. Rick, the author of the new book called Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict and triumph. Thanks for your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? In the internet world, they can go to, you know, rickhammett.com, R-I-K-E-M-M-E-T-T.com. And certainly they can find stuff there. But I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. And the book has come out on ECW Press. And, of course, they've got their own websites. But like most folks, you'd probably just go to Google and you type in Rick Emmett book. And then you're <laughs> going to end up on Amazon. And you're going to buy my book on Amazon. And I will make this one little speech because ECW says you should always do this. Every community has their own independent booksellers, and people should try to support the independent booksellers in their neighborhoods, in their communities, because there's a place where the rubber meets the road. That's one of them. Like books and a book that you're holding in your hand, that's a beautiful thing. So I don't want to see that die. You know, don't let that stupid phone in your hand, (laughs) this camera that's in front of you, you know, dominate your life in a way that it takes away the beauty of the printed word. So. There's my speech. We will put links to your website and uh, we'll find an independent bookseller online or something like that to uh, yeah. to help folks connect to the book. So thanks again for your time. Thanks for the music. It's really nice to talk to you. Paul, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I want to say thank you to Rick for not just making the time to do the interview, but for being present, for sharing good stories and for being engaged. He's a, a generous guest and he was also very patient with me when we had a little technical difficulty with our recording software. So thank you, Rick. Good luck with the book. You know, I was thinking about something I heard in an interview, uh, Brian Koppelman, who is the creator of Billions, and he wrote movies like Rounders. He was interviewing Mike Mills from REM, the bass player and backup singer for REM. And he was trying to get Mills to admit that the later REM records weren't as good as the early REM records, which is an understandable argument for those people who haven't listened closely to the later REM records, as I have, because I'm an aficionado. Thank you very much. And Mill said something very interesting. He said, you know, that may be the case for certain people, but no music sounds as good to you as the music that you were listening to the first time you got laid. You were getting laid. I think it was an ongoing, a sort of a progressive tense of the verb. And I was thinking about that when I was listening to Magic Power for the first time, that what I referred to when I said I got chills. And no, I wasn't getting laid in eighth grade. <clears throat> I wasn't that big of a Casanova. It was many years later, for better or for worse. Thank you, ladies of St. Pius High School. But no, I was thinking about it. It was like, 
no music sounds as good to you. To me, it's not just about the getting laid part. It's about when you wake up to the world, when you start discovering your own taste, when when things that aren't delivered to you from your parents speak to you on a level that rhymes with adulthood, that you start to become your own person, that something from the outside is unique to you, even though somebody else created it. It resonates with you on an emotional level. And I don't want to say that Triumph was my favorite band of all time. That would be like more of a U2 Duran Duran kind of thing. And in my hipper days, maybe New Order or something. But like, I legitimately got chills when I listened to Magic Power in preparation for this interview. And I was like, my God, this sounds good. It was just that that revisitation of that emotional memory of being young, of being aware, of being just on the cusp between childhood and, and early adulthood. And it was cool. It was really, really cool. And I'm grateful to Rick for the the tiny dent he made in our culture and the tiny gifts he gave all of us through his music. I think it's super cool, and I'm I'm glad I got to meet him. All right, next week, a different kind of contribution to our culture. Jennifer Wallace, author of the book Never Enough, which is all about toxic achievement culture for both parents and kids, will be with us. And we had a great conversation, very relevant to what all of us are up to managing our own expectations for ourselves and for our kids. I know it'll be worth your time. So definitely tune in next week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.